This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clutter, where true personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week, our stories pull back the curtain on what it's like to be a guinea pig. No, not really. I'm sorry I said that. I meant to say an active participant in scientific research. It's fascinating stuff. Now that I have your attention, hang around. First up, we have Susan Fee. Susan is a mental health therapist living and working in Seattle. She's also the director of Brain Power Chronicles, Stories of Mental Health. Susan's story is an absolutely captivating peek into the weird and wonderful world of mother-daughter relationships, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Here's Susan. I'm in a dimly lit room, looking through a two-way mirror, watching my 15-year-old daughter get questioned. And I'm either the best mom in the world or the worst. Pretty sure I'm the worst. We are both enrolled in a stress management study at Kent State University in Ohio. They're studying teenage moms, or teenage moms, no, teenage daughters (laughs) and their moms. (laughs) And I'm sure I don't have a problem with my stress, but I do wonder if my daughter Gabrielle does. Or maybe she's stressed about me, and that's my real fear. The researcher lady is just cold and deadpan. She makes Lilith from the TV show Frasier just look like a warm, cuddly bear. (laughs) And she's explaining to Gabrielle how she's going to have to do these math problems in her head and give the answer out loud. Now this just puts me on edge right away. I mean, I, I did sign up for this study, but I didn't really know everything it entailed. And here I am staring at my daughter through a two-way mirror, and and I know that she didn't know I was going to do that, so it feels really invasive. But also, I mean, come on, what mom doesn't want to know what her teenage daughter is really thinking? So Gabrielle's sitting there with her long ponytail, swinging around. She's got her soccer gear on, ready to go, and researcher lady says, okay, Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a number. You subtract by sevens. So if I say 107, you say 100, and then 93. And I think, okay, okay, maybe this won't be so bad. So she starts out, and the researcher lady says to Gabrielle, 1,023. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, what kind of... 
What kind of math bait and switch is that? I mean, I feel so anxious right now. I hate doing math in public. It sends me right back to being a teenager in seventh grade, and I had to do the math problem on the chalkboard, and I got it wrong and took that walk of shame back. And now I'm subjecting my own daughter to this. But Gabrielle, she seems calm. And so she just starts in and she's given these answers, and she's about five deep, and researcher lady says, stop, wrong answer, start over. I just wanna take this lady out at her knees, but Gabrielle, she just takes a breath, she starts from the top, and she keeps on going, this time further, I'm impressed. Then, researcher lady, stop, wrong answer, start again. They do this one more round, and then finally it's over. And I just want to smash through this two-way mirror, hug my daughter. She's not distraught, but I am. I want to tell her the real reason we're doing this study, besides the reasons I already told her. Yes, I'm in the mental health field, and it's good to support research. And yes, she's going to get paid, and she likes money. And yes, I may have pitched it as something fun and exciting to do. <laughs> But the real reason is I want to find out how I'm doing as a mom. All my life, I've asked two questions. What's it like to have a good mom? And what's it like to be one? Because when I was Gabrielle's age, I had already been a caretaker of my mom for three years. That's when she had a massive stroke and was left in a vegetative state. And it threw our family in, into an uproar. My dad had to quit his job to take care of me, and together we took care of my mom. And as hard as that was, it was a relief. Because before that, my mom's alcoholism made our lives so unpredictable, and it left me in just this constant state of anxiety. Is this the day that she would show up at school drunk and naked? Or is this the day we'd be racing down the freeway with me captive in the back seat and we're eluding some phantom villains? When I became a mom, I had one goal. Don't be like my mother. But as far as what to do, I didn't really have a clue. Researcher lady is back with Gabrielle and she tells her, you're going to have five minutes to come up with an original story, and then you're going to stand up in front and present it with no notes. Now I want to hear this story, but then I don't. Because like, what if this is the time Gabrielle says my mother hasn't a clue? And then all the smart people come in and take her away. But instead, she tells a story about walking our dog to meet a friend. And then researcher lady, about two sentences in, says, can you speak up? I can't hear you. Okay, this woman is in the wrong room. She needs to be in the casting audition for Mean Girls. She's out of this business. Gabrielle starts again, takes a deep breath, speaks louder. And then researcher lady cuts her off again and says, I'm bored, tell another story. On the spot, Gabrielle comes up with another story. 30 seconds in, researcher lady says, that's enough, we're done. They put on this video of fish swimming and then take saliva from Gabrielle to test for her stress hormones. Meanwhile, they give me a questionnaire of my own, but they do not ask the hard questions. They don't ask, 
What were you thinking when your daughter had walking pneumonia and you thought it was just a cold? And what kind of mom takes her kid biking for miles, just assuming she's behind you but never checking if she's keeping up? She wasn't keeping up. Another family had to rescue her and reunite us. It just seemed like I focused on the wrong things as a mom, like healthy eating. Isn't that what good moms do? I would pack Gabrielle lunch every day of quinoa and hummus, no fast food, no junk food. I thought I was doing the right thing, but then all that meant that she was ostracized at school because nobody liked her food. They made fun of it. We're back. And finally, 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 they clear Gabrielle of this study. This horrible study is over, and we're reunited, and I can't get out of that office fast enough because in the hallway, I finally have to ask Gabrielle, Gabrielle, are you okay? How was it? And she goes, oh, shrugs. It was fine. We did some, like, test activities, and I don't know. I had to memorize stuff. It, it was fine. And now I wonder, like, should I tell her? Should I tell her now? Like, what would a good mom do? Should I tell her that I saw her? I saw the whole thing, and I can't stand the guilt. And I say, I've got something to tell you. And she looks at me concerned. What? And I explained that I didn't know, but I watched, and I had to watch the whole thing, and I felt so bad, and I'm so sorry. And she takes it all in, and she looks at me, and she says, wait, you, you saw all of that? You saw everything. I did. So you saw and heard everything, like even that researcher lady? I did. So, big smile breaks out, and she says, oh, good, because now I don't have to try to explain to you what went on in there. Like, she was horrible, and I said, I know, she's horrible. I felt so bad, but I felt so nervous for you. And she stops me again and she said, did you ever think that they weren't studying me? They were studying you? Hmm. On the car ride home, Gabrielle says, do you think just this once that we could get some fast food? Like maybe Chipotle? <laughs> we both got double sour cream. And we sat and we laughed and we laughed and we laughed about Researcher Lady. <laughs> and it was the best meal I ever had. Thank you. That was Susan. Head to storyclutter.org to learn more about her. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make story clutter happen, but if standing alone, in the spotlight, in front of an audience, doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a story clutter donor might be more your speed. Story clutter donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story clutter is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please donate to the Story Clutter at storyclutter.org donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Clutter. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our next story is from Kenise Mobley. Kenise is a stand-up comedian and filmmaker who lives in Brooklyn, New York. She's been on The Tonight Show and Netflix's A Joke Festival. Her story was recorded at our go-to spot in New York, Caveat, and is about the relationship between race and personal comfort. The science behind it is so interesting and cool. But bonus, Kenise is hilarious. Here's Kenise. Anxiety, we're going to get into it. Yes, hello. And uh, it really started manifesting itself when I worked at a startup. Ooh. Uh, and when I say startup, I feel like some of you are thinking of like Google or like something that has a lot of money and like is making something that the world is asking for. I need you to lower those expectations <laughs> tremendously. Uh, think of like the third rate or like what in colleges there's like Ivy League, not community college level, but like right above it for. Startups, you know, and I was going into the office and every day I would get so anxious. Like, you know, it's a bad job when you start to cry on the way into work um, and then also leaving work. Um, and that just kind of defines who you are as a person. Right. <laughs> and for one of my jobs, it was uh, sales consulting in Boston, Massachusetts. Yes. And we had to fly around the country to do sales consulting for lots of different companies. And I should say, I'm, uh, I, have, I have claustrophobia, and sometimes it's kind of mild. Uh, but when I am in a state where I am crying uh, constantly, it can get quite bad. And one time, I was on a plane, and I had taken uh, a pill so that I could calm down a little bit. But I woke up in the middle of the flight, and my heart was racing, and I was scared, and I was doing that kind of quiet cry that you do as to not scare the people around you. Are you guys familiar? Uh, where you're like, I promise I'm not up to anything bad or anything. I just, it's just a hard time, you know? But I could feel in my body that a panic attack was building and it was gonna happen. And so it was like, just breathe, breathe, okay. And I was like, no, I'm gonna get a professional. I'm gonna get some help because this is a moment where I don't feel totally solid. So I go up to the flight attendant because they are a sky professional. And I start crying at this woman, and I tell her, I am about to have a panic attack. And she looks at me confused and kind of scared and just like, what, what, do, you, what do you want me to do? Simultaneously, uh, a man, 6'2", gets up and puts his hand on what looks to be a gun and says, do we need to land this plane? <laughs> 
because apparently if you do want to find out who the air marshal is, having a panic attack is a way to do it. And if any of you, haha, some of you have anxiety, then you know that maybe a tall man with his hand on a gun shouting at you isn't the best way to de-escalate your emotional state. So then I have a full-blown panic attack at both of them. And everyone is doing that thing where you just like try to make it so that you're as far away from the incident as possible. Uh, whereas you make no eye contact with the people, so an, a plane full of people looking elsewhere, uh, while I freak out in the middle, and I'm hyperventilating, and I'm just, I can't get it together. But then, a very nice black flight attendant pops her head from the back and is like, girl, do you drink? And normally, uh, a 9.30 flight to New Orleans, the answer is no, normally. But... I needed to calm down, so she put me on a box in the middle of the aisle and fed me wine until I stopped scaring the other passengers. And that was the strategy. And I was like, okay, I have a solution. I, I have a system. But unfortunately, that system does not work all the time. Uh, you cannot just drink wine. Uh, and I mean, even though it was New Orleans, let's be real. I mean, come on, you guys have been. But I had to figure out something because I worked in Boston. And so I would take the train every morning. Boston, I don't know, have you guys been? You've been? The, my favorite description of Boston is actually from an Onion article where they say, uh, small town every morning wakes up and pretends to be a city. Yes. <laughs> That's, that's Boston, and I was doing that work, okay? So I was putting on my little suits because of sales consulting, and I was going in, and I was absolutely panicked. And I was on the train. I have claustrophobia. It's packed. It's the middle of Boston winter, so everyone not only is there in there tightly, but they're all wearing lots and lots of layers because it's like 20 degrees conservatively. And we stop between train stations, which is a very common, it happens here, but it happened in Boston all the time. So between two train stations, the train just stops. And I start panicking, and I can feel my breath speeding up, and I can feel my heart speeding up. And I've been to therapy for this, so I'm trying to do all of the things they've taught me to do to calm down in these moments of panic. I'm thinking about a place that makes me calm and makes me feel centered and relaxed. I'm imagining my bedroom, and then I'm imagining my bedroom on fire. <laughs> I'm doing the thing where they're like, okay, plant yourself in your feet. Really pay attention to how you feel, your toes, then your whole feet, then your ankles, then your legs. And I'm just slowly imagining all of those things being submerged in water and all of us just drowning and dying. Okay. And so I cannot get it together, and I'm doing, again, the slow, it's starting, the, the little cry that you try to keep to yourself that everyone tries not to look at. But my body goes from being mildly chilly to approximately 500 degrees, and I think, okay, the only thing I know to do in this moment is to take my clothes off. So I slowly start unzipping my jacket. And there's so many people. It's not like my clothes go anywhere. They're just like sitting around me based on all the people. But I, I take my jacket off and I take the overlayer of my pants. I'm wearing two pairs of pants because it's Boston and it's winter. Okay. And then I'm just in a button up shirt and leggings and starting to sob. And I can't breathe and I can't control it. And then this lady 
she's 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 white and she looks quite quite old. When I say old, okay, she looks like have you guys been to a classic art museum and seen paintings of women in the 1880s? She looks like she was one of those women. <laughs> she everything was wrinkled in such an interesting way, but I didn't know that wrinkles how they could cover every p possible part of one skin, but she very nicely reaches out and is like, do you want to hold my hand? Very sweet, but a little bit of backstory. In college, I had lots of jobs, and one of those jobs was working at Duke University's psychology research lab. And one thing that they wanted to research, I was there for something else. We were doing a recreation of the Clark doll study wherein we present dolls of different colors to children and ask them which one is preferable. It's the study that was used in, I think, 1954, the Board of Brown versus Board of Education. Thank you. And it was used to tell school districts that this segregation was actively hurting the psyche of black children. At any rate, we were recreating it, and surprise, surprise, <laughs> the results were the same. It hasn't changed much. But they did notice, they were like, hey, uh, we noticed that you're black. Do you think you could come help us with a study? And I was like, sure, I'll, I'd like to make some money. So what the study was is it was testing to see if race affected how comforted people were by holding someone's hand. Because they knew that in studies of people, like to white people, that holding hands with someone lowers someone's level of stress. And they wanted to see if that changed based on the hand of the person who was offering comfort. So for a summer, my job was to wait behind a curtain and they would tell, the researchers would tell a person to relive a horrible experience, describe the worst thing that ever happened to them, and at a moment, indicated by the researchers, I would slip my hand <laughs> through a curtain and just hold onto their hand. That was my job for a summer. I heard stories about trauma and parenting and some things that you were like, okay, that, that's, the, that's the worst thing that ever happened to you? Okay. And at the end, they paid me and they, they gave me the results of the study, although they didn't pay me as much as they should have. Okay, look, they gave me the results of the study. The race of the hand does affect how comforted the person is. So white people would be comforted by a white hand. Black people would be comforted by a black hand. White people would be comforted by a black hand, but it was less so than if it had been offered by a white person. So back to me, crappy startup, having a panic attack on a train. When this lady who was, let's call her Methuselah, when this lady <laughs> offered me her hand, it was very frustrating because my first thought was, I don't know if this is gonna work <laughs> in the way that you think it's gonna work. But I was still panicking and I was still unable to control myself. <laughs> and at that moment, I did take that woman's hand and I did feel comforted and we held hands until the train finally moved and pulled into Harvard Station, that's the station. And we both got off and she gave me a hug and she told me I, that she hoped I would be okay. And it was just a clear sign to take help wherever you can get it. Because hey, some people are nice and that's all that you need at the moment. I'm Kenise. thanks. <laughs> Thank you.
That was Kenise. If you'd like to learn more about her, visit our website, storyclatter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with the Story Clatter, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclutter.org to become a financial supporter. Also, we're less than two weeks away from the Story Clutter Ultimate Story Slam Showdown. On December 12th, donate to vote for your favorite storyteller or storytellers throughout the night and see who will emerge as the Story Slam winner. All the proceeds from the night go to support the Story Clutter's programs. If you can't join us on December 12th or don't know who to vote for, please make a donation to Story Clutter to support our work in 2024. More details about this show and all our other shows are on our website. The Story Collider is very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone in the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Kent Whipple, Juan Carlos Martinez Jr., Gastor Almonte, and Zach Stovall. Special thanks goes out to the Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Brinson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, I'll be back with stories that explore what it means to bring your whole self to a space. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.